this is episode 45 of Dave's Daredevil podcast featuring Spider-Man and Daredevil at odds with one another. Can they team up in time to stop the masked marauder? Hello there. I didn't see you come in. I'm J. David Weeder. You can call me Dave, and this is Dave's Daredevil Podcast, Episode 45. The show all about Marvel Comics' blind lawyer by day and superhero by night, Daredevil. This week we're picking up with the second part of the Masked Marauder saga, trilogy, whatever you want to call it. But we're resolving last week's cliffhanger where Spider-Man had Foggy by the collar. And before we jump into the comic book, I want to give you the third installment of my ongoing defense of the 2003 Daredevil movie. Last week I gave an account of the months that led up to the release of the movie and my reaction to the movie, just so you know where I stood and still stand with that. Just to make sure I convey my frothing excitement that existed to see my boy Daredevil on the big screen. This week we get down to some of the nuts and bolts of the movie, looking at the first act which is essentially Daredevil's origin. Now, the movie opens to New York City and a CGI rat. Yes, the rat was CGI. They had to substitute it because the real rat was not cooperating. But we pan up from the street to the top of the church where Daredevil is draped over the cross, much like the Joe Cazada cover for Daredevil number 1. At least the variant cover, I should be more accurate. And this leads to, well, the flashback. We have Matt fighting Tony Soprano's kid, coming home to Jack Murdoch played by David Keith. Not to be confused with Keith David, those are two separate gentlemen. One was the voice of Spawn, the other was in Officer and a Gentleman. David Keith plays Jack Murdoch to a T. He is spot on. This is a very underrated performance. I cannot rave enough about this performance. He even looks perfectly like what Jack Murdoch looks like in the comics. And that's in no small part to some prosthetics placed on his face to make sure that he resembles that, that he has the Cro-Magnon brow. And I'm sorry, but when that much detail goes into Jack Murdoch, who is, you know, largely an absent character in body, but very much embodied in spirit in Daredevil, when that much detail goes into it, you know the heart is in the right place. Beyond the prosthetics, there are little hints to a backstory that don't weigh down the movie, but they add volumes to the character of Jack Murdoch. If you're watching closely, he has a Marine Corps tattoo. I have double researched this. David Keith was never in the Marine Corps. The closest he ever came was, well, an officer and a gentleman. Now, I'll grant you, we've never seen that Jack Murdoch was in the Marine Corps, but it kind of makes sense, and it tells the story of a man, where he came from. He was a grunt and kind of a fighter. It makes perfect sense, and then you look at the set design of the apartment that Matt and Jack share, and it's so spot on. Again, there's more hints. If you look closely when Matt helps Jack to bed, there is a photo on the bedside table of a woman. Assumptively, that's Matt's mother, Maggie. And the mood is perfect. The relationship between Jack and Matt is conveyed clearly and concisely. Because really, the origin portion goes at a pretty good clip, thankfully. Now, the big sticking point for a lot of people, and, and one that I will echo to some extent, is that when we get to the accident that spawns Matt's abilities, 
it removes the heroic act of Matt saving a blind man from the equation. Instead of taking a leap out, saving this guy, and that's what results in his blindness and therefore abilities, we have Matt showing up, finding out his father is working for Sweeney, shaking down small businesses for protection money, etc. And I will say this about that. This movie presents a more lengthy idea of Matt coming to the idea of heroism versus revenge. Matt's arc in this whole movie is really discerning, in the Daredevil guys at least, what is justice and what is acting on pure anger, pure revenge. It's finding his footing on that tightrope I talked about in Daredevil number 181. So removing that heroic angle makes sense. I mean, it's in there. Don't get me wrong. It's not in the accident, but we do see him save Stan Lee. So the act is there. There's still an integrity to him. And I've got to say, when Matt wakes up, the bombardment of the senses is amazing. Yeah, the special effects are a little off, but still looking at that, it clearly tells you what's going on. Just the absolute chaos that would be flooding this kid's brain and how overpowering it is. Whatever your qualms with the rest of the movie, I can't see very much to criticize on this part of the movie. Yes, the visuals play heavy-handed. We have scenes like Matt following Jack down the hallway with his father's shadow, you know, in the devil robe, enveloping Matt. And yes, that's melodramatic, but there's nothing wrong with melodramatic. Stan Lee, of all people, was melodramatic. The most important thing is that Jack and Matt's relationship, once again to repeat myself, is clearly conveyed because... That relationship is the emotional underpinning of the story and pretty much of the whole Daredevil saga in the comics as well. If you're going to screw something up, Matt and Jack should not be that part. And yeah, I have some small gripes. They don't really weigh too heavy on me. We have Fallon replacing the Fixer or even Sweeney. No real reason why the name was changed, but same basic character. And depending on my mood, the name dropping of past creative teams such as David Mack, Frank Miller, Brian Michael Bendis, and Father Everett for Bill Everett, it can either be, well, annoying and distracting, or realizing it's a celebration that work went into this. There was passion behind this movie wanting to bring so much to the screen. Now, in some ways, that overzealousness to bring so much to the screen was the movie's biggest hindrance, but I'm going to get into that more and more as we go down. But again, it has melodramatic moments, but this origin has everything it needs in the form of heart. It has everything it needs in terms of character development. Both Matt and Jack really go through a small mini-arc in just this first act. They go through more character development in this short bit of the movie than some characters go through in an entire full-length movie. It either has your buy-in from that point, or you should just stop watching. Because once you have that core of the character done so clearly, it's hard to really screw it up. Are there mistakes made in the movie? Yes. Does that underpinning that starts here follow all the way through to the end? Most certainly. It's the most important relationship to Matt beyond Foggy. So now that I'm done gushing about the first act of the movie, let's take a look at our comic. Last week, the Masked Marauder saga saw Marauder pit Spider-Man and Daredevil against each other as he stole the plans for an experimental engine. The two heroes fought, but Daredevil took that round. Now with that and adding the fact that Daily Bugle publisher J. Jonah Jameson pegged Spider-Man as the Marauder's accomplice, well, Spider-Man is more than a little ticked. So while swinging around the city, Spider-Man used his Spider-Sense to locate Daredevil at the offices of Nelson and Murdoch. But Spider-Man misjudged the scene and pegs Foggy as Daredevil grabbing the lawyer by his collar, which is exactly where we left off and right where we're going to pick up right after this podcast promo. 
1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. Monthly at mystarwarsstory.com As is the custom here at Dave's Daredevil Podcast, once we return from a break, we talk about a comic. I mean, if the format wasn't made clear in 45 episodes, I've done something terribly wrong. This comic is Daredevil number 17, cover dated June 1966. The cover is an image showing uh, Daredevil on a rooftop, spinning on his billy club, kicking the masked marauder in the face like the dirty turkey that he is. On the wall behind Daredevil, the spider signal shines, announcing the off-panel presence of Spider-Man. I've got to say, the spider signal stands out beautifully on this cover. It's very much what your eye is drawn to in this image. Not that it's a bad image, but it's kind of a stagnant cover. Daredevil's kicking the Marauder, and the springy pose lends itself some fluidity, but that spider signal is the central theme. The composition is very middle of the road, I guess. The figure work elevates it, and that splash of spider signal just sort of... It's a great way to signal the guest star without crowding the cover. Although I think the cover could have done with a little bit of crowding. I'm not sure. It's a well-known cover. I like the cover. I don't love it. And I don't find myself staring at it as I would with other covers analyzing it. It is what it is, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's also nothing great about that either. The story inside is entitled None Are So Blind. Written by Stan Lee. Penciled by the incomparable John Romita. And I say that because, well, nobody really compares. Except for maybe Gene Colan. So maybe incomparable was not the word I wanted to use. My bad. Uh, it's inked by Frank Giacoya and lettered by Sam Rosen. If you're wanting to read along, it was reprinted multiple times in Daredevil Annual Number 3, for example. Spider-Man's Greatest Team-Ups, a trade paperback from 96. The 29th volume of the Marvel Masterworks, which was the Daredevil Volume 2 hardcover. Essential Daredevil Volume 1, Marvel Visionaries John Romita Sr. hardcover. And by digital means, legal digital means, through Comixology, Marvel Digital, and Digital Unlimited. And I kind of gave my stamp of approval on Digital Unlimited last week. So with that out of the way, let us jump into None Are So Blind from Daredevil number 17. The story picks right up with Spider-Man hanging Foggy out the window of the high-rise offices of Nelson and Murdoch. Level heads prevail as Karen, of all people, reminds Spider-Man that Daredevil isn't the only one who wears a mask, and Spidey puts Foggy down and takes off. Later, after Foggy implies that Spider-Man was right, Matt is left all alone in the office and suits up as Daredevil. Daredevil doesn't find Spider-Man, but does listen in on a meeting at the World Motors building where the masked marauder stole the engine plans. Through the meeting, Daredevil learns that the engine plans don't include the formula for the special fuel needed to run it. Hornhead uses this information to form a plan, a plan that involves J. Jonah Jameson announcing the forgotten element of the engine on television. 
Watching at home as Jameson announces the fuel and once again fingers Spidey for the Marauder's accomplice, Peter Parker grows furious. The masked Marauder is also furious and decides to stage a second robbery on the same building, but the board of directors at World Motor Company are prepared, beefing up security. And now the stage is set for Daredevil's plan to play out. Which is where we're going to take a moment to stop and talk about the book. Soon as you open the book, you're right back in the middle of the story, right where you left off. And Matt looks, he looks constipated, okay? I mean, I know this is kind of a, an emotional situation, but Matt really looks like he could use some X-lax. But the thing that stands out here is Karen Page is the voice of reason. What's wrong with this picture? You have three men in this room. Two of them are superheroes. Two of them are lawyers. One out of three is both. Two are college-educated, one is a genius scientifically. So, I think it says something, quite positive actually, about Karen being the brains. Because let's be honest, Spider-Man could crush Foggy's head like a, a moldy grapefruit, it would be nothing. But of course, lawyers are known for arguing and putting a sound argument out there. Karen, of course, being a secretary, working with this material all day long, has probably gleaned some of that. I know paralegals that, well, paralegals pretty much do what a lawyer does for less money but they know how to do a lawyer's job just as well as the lawyer in some cases. No offense if you are a lawyer. But I think the fact that Karen is the one that brings levity to this scene and breaks up the fight and speaks pure common sense, it doesn't completely dispel the idea that Stanley was an unintentional misogynist, but it definitely shows that from time to time, Stan would kind of see the world for what it is. Men can let their emotions and their anger and their tempers get away with themselves, and sometimes it takes somebody with common sense to do that, and many, many times. Well, that's our significant others, our mothers, our aunts. So I'm going to strike this as a somewhat win in the feminist column. And yes, being a male, I know I don't have any expertise in feminism, so take that as just a observation in a comic book. And to kind of further that particular point, at least in terms of the male libido driving us to do things, I won't say that we wouldn't normally do, but things that we shouldn't do, Foggy just became the poser 20-something that hangs out with high school girls. He's pretending that he might sort of maybe be Daredevil without confirming that. He's just become Matthew McConaughey from Dazed and Confused. No, man. No, man. Tell you. That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do. Again, we are talking about a college-educated gentleman. Now, I'm not going to hammer this point home very much because I already did that way back in Episode 3, which actually covers Issue 18, which follows this issue. Yeah, I know. It's all out of order. I should work on some chart like a machete order of how to listen to these. Page 3, as all of this is going on and everybody's thinking, uh, Karen's thinking about Matt and Foggy, Foggy's thinking about being Foggy and Daredevil, Matt's thinking about all of this. It has a total of seven thought balloons in one panel. They even boast about it in a caption, in today's era, a letterer would be fired for this. There's too many options. You can actually Google proper lettering technique. There's a certain number of thought balloons, a certain size they should be, but again, this is the 60s. The art form evolves, the technology evolves, so... I will chalk it up to that. I wouldn't dare pat myself on the back for seven very large, very long thought balloons on one page. But Stan sure thought he was cool with that. Now, when Matt goes swinging and looking for Spider-Man, he assumes Spider-Man likes the challenge of a battle. 
which is what Daredevil likes. And I think there's more to it than that. I think that's a simple statement in the comic. But Daredevil clearly has not put Spider-Man together. You and I, as readers of Spider-Man, or some of us are readers of Spider-Man, know better. Daredevil does have that element of seeing how far he can push the envelope. That sneaky lawyer's trick. How long can he walk on that tightrope? Some of it is just seeing what he's capable of. Just seeing what he can get away with. Some part of it, if we're being honest, feeds Matt's ego. Because, by that token, the further he gets from the helpless little boy that he was, the more he proves the bully's wrong. So I will say there's that subconscious part of what drives Matt as Daredevil, along with the compassion, along with just having the ability to do it, and a strong sense of justice and right and wrong. Matt made a promise to Jack Murdock to hit the books and nothing else, which is what led to having a dual identity. Spider-Man made a different promise. The whole, with great power comes great responsibility. Peter, at least in the same sense that Matt is, is not as worried about the bullies. That's not to say Peter has no concern over Flash Thompson or whoever might be picking on him, but Peter has, well, he has a teenage ego, and he has the powers to back it. And let's be honest, if you go back to Amazing Fantasy 15, Peter had the mouth that got himself in trouble a lot. So Peter's not out to really prove those people wrong. He's more out to right a wrong, in a sense. Because Peter, being Spider-Man, is a curse and a responsibility. Peter isn't trying to push the envelope. He's not trying to feed his own ego. And it's not saying that Daredevil's motivation is invalid, but it's just different. But Peter's comes from a place of guilt, that failure to save Uncle Ben. Matt doesn't have the same scenario with Jack Murdock. In a lot of ways, Jack got himself into that trouble. Matt was an innocent bystander. However, there was no justice for him, which drives him. Because there are others out there who need justice and who do not receive it. Hence, Daredevil. With Uncle Ben and Peter, it's the idea that Peter really does lay that guilt on his shoulders. And Peter's, whether we see it expressly stated or not, Peter's deathly afraid that when he puts that Spider-Man costume down, who is he failing? Who will get hurt because he's not Spider-Man? Who's going to get killed by Dr. Octopus because there's not a web-slinger there to stop it? So Matt has misjudged Spider-Man quite a bit. And I don't want it to sound like Matt has an invalid motivation or is only feeding his ego. I'm saying that's more of a subconscious. Justice and compassion is what drives him in a primary fashion. The proving of the bullies, the inflation of the ego, those are side effects. Matt ultimately is doing what he does from a place of justice, and he pushes his own boundaries to achieve a greater good, but feeling better about himself is a side effect. Now, having gone through that, let me segue to another observation that I just can't wrap my head around. J. Jonah Jameson finds Daredevil acceptable, but not Spider-Man. Daredevil's fine. Come on in. Yeah, I'll help you with your plan. Sure, the side effect is I get to smear Spider-Man again. Let's think about this. J.J.J. and Daredevil have not had any interaction. So we're talking about two masked men doing essentially the same thing. The difference is Spider-Man saved John Jameson in a space flight. John Jameson being the astronaut son of J. Jonah Jameson. I can't understand, outside of story mechanics, why J. Jonah Jameson would even entertain an idea from Daredevil. Especially one that ends up costing him money because he buys airtime to do this announcement about the fuel. It's a huge double standard. And J. Jonah Jameson has grown as a character, I will admit that. But ultimately, he was there to be comic relief, to be the plucky, funny boss. However... 
he also ends up making Spider-Man's life hell. And, you know, let's be honest, J. Jonah Jameson for a long time was an outright villain. He would actually control Spider-Slayers and actively try to kill Spider-Man. And yet, Daredevil's cool. That's right. I guess it must be the fact that, well, you can see a little bit of his chin through the mask. So, I'm angry about that. But think about how angry Peter is. Peter's watching this on TV, he's getting smeared, when really all he was doing was getting duped. The Marauder manipulated these two by having people in Daredevil costumes try to attack Spider-Man. Spider-Man reacted. That's it. That's all that happened. So Peter's watching this on TV, getting pissed, and Aunt May walks in on him. He says, I'm simply trying to condition myself. What does that mean? I'm just trying to condi- I'm conditioning myself. I think if I'm reading between the lines and just looking at this panel, this scene is borderline disturbing. Because it's very much like Aunt May just walked in on Peter with the Sears lingerie catalog. Take of that what you will. So when asked in the future, gentlemen, you're conditioning yourself. Okay, I think I've gone lowbrow enough for this episode. Let's jump back into the story and see how Daredevil's plan plays out. Having set the stage for his plans, Daredevil returns to his office just as Karen and Foggy arrive for the morning. Matt plays as if he has been up late, burning the midnight oil, and Foggy detects just a slight note of respect in Karen's voice. Perhaps Karen believing him to be Daredevil has its perks. Oh yes. Later, as Spider-Man swings near the World Motors building, he spots Daredevil swinging nearby. And of course, the two begin to fight again as a large yellow blimp floats closer to the World Motors building, but security relaxes because they spot the World Motors logo on the blimp, so all must be well. Unknown to security and to Daredevil and Spidey, who continue to fight, aboard this blimp is, of course, the masked marauder and a group of henchmen. The second robbery is about to happen as the two superheroes continue to fight. Let me stop there and just say, another fight? Another one? Round two? As much as I like to see superheroes fight each other, I like to see them team up a little bit more. So I'm wondering, looking at these two issues, if this could have been condensed a bit. Now, being the fourth episode of a series here where we've had two back-to-back two-parters, I will say that this one plays out a little bit better than the Fantastic Four issues. It doesn't feel as stretched. Yet, it is stretched. Just not as much. And of course, the blimp arrives. Let's be honest. We should all relax because nothing bad ever happened involving a blimp. Nobody looks at a blimp and thinks of any disaster. So all must be well. But you know, looking at this, I had to think of it. There's a lot of money that went into this robbery. There's a lot of investment here. How much does this robbery cost the Masked Marauder? I mean, we're talking about a second trip to the same building. So I did some research and just kind of got some figures for you. Most of these are in 2015 money, so apply that as you will to 1965. A blimp to carry four to six people would cost around $5 million. Now, proportionately, that would be less in the 60s. However, a key word here is proportionately. It's still a chunk of change. If you remember the Marauder's van, it had that vacuum tube, the pneumatic tube. So I thought, how much would a pneumatic tube with one blower and two stations cost? This is a tube with about a three inch diameter. We're talking about a small pneumatic tube, mostly for inner office mail, things like that. $8,000. $8,000. That's not counting the cost of the actual van itself or any of the other equipment. That's just a pneumatic tube. Then you've got henchmen. You want them to wear matching suits, right? There's got to be a theme. It counts. Fashion counts. Having gone through a couple of uniform shops, 
just to look for something pretty simple and straightforward. A standard jumpsuit would cost about $30 per henchman. So if you have six henchmen, as we see here, you're dropped $180 per pair. You can pretty much double that because you're going to have to have at least two. They're not going to wear the same thing all the time. That's on top of all the Daredevil uniforms we saw last week in the Billy Clubs. Now, when the men get into the building, they use a shock shatter ray to open the vault. We don't know what a shock shatter ray is, but an acetylene torch, and this is a lower scale acetylene torch, costs $750. And of course, the henchmen have to be paid. Nobody's going to work for free. If we go with minimum wage, which is we're using the 2015 proportions, you're looking at about $1.25 an hour in 1960s. So minimum wage at this time to pay the henchmen would be around $1.25 an hour. But if you have 40 hours a week with nine workers, you're looking at $450 a week. It had to take at least three weeks to plan this thing out. Now I tell you all these numbers to say this. The Masked Marauder apparently already has money. $5 million for a blimp. Folks, if I had $5 million, I would not buy a blimp to begin with because I don't like blimps. But I sure wouldn't go to my day job. I really wouldn't think about turning to crime because I'm just not that bored. I'd probably podcast full-time if you want to know the honest truth. Not to mention some of the other costs associated with villainy. Now, of course, there's a moral aspect. I don't really want to be a villain. I don't want to look over my shoulder. But if you have $5 million to drop on a blimp, you can pretty much skip the whole villainy robbery thing. And suddenly I sound like one to grow on. So I'm going to move on to the next and final phase of the story before Michael J. Fox shows up and shares more about villainy. So jumping back into that, in the midst of his fight with Daredevil, Spider-Man spots the Masked Marauder and his men climbing down to the roof of the World Motors building. He breaks away from Daredevil to engage the Marauder and quickly takes out the Marauder's henchmen, but succumbs to the Marauder's dreaded Optoblast. This is Daredevil's cue to tag in, and he engages the Marauder mano a mano since he's not affected by the Optiblast, because, you know, he's blind. Maybe you caught that gimmick. But the Marauder's men are getting away. In an act of desperation, Daredevil fires a discarded laser gun at the blimp, blowing up the escape vehicle. Police and security burst onto the roof, assuming Spider-Man to be an accomplice, but Daredevil sets the record straight. Spidey is the hero. However, in the excitement, the masked marauder ties up a police officer and steals his uniform to escape the crowd. Coincidentally, the marauder overhears Foggy and Karen on the sidewalk as Foggy pretends that he, you know, he's Daredevil, despite actually being in the building to see his dentist. However, the marauder actually believes Foggy and files that away for later. Still, the real Daredevil heads home, frustrated that the villain got away and even more worried about Foggy's boasting. But perhaps, Daredevil has found an ally in Spider-Man, even as he has an enemy in the Masked Marauder. And so ends Daredevil number 17. Now, as Spider-Man jumps into the fight with the Marauder and his men, this is a straight-up Batman 66-style fight. We have Biff, Bang, Pow, three, count them, three sound effects in one panel. And then this abruptly ends because the Opti-Blast affects Spider-Man's Spider-Sense. Wait, what? The Spider-Sense is not a visual tool. Again, we don't know exactly what the Opti-Blast does. It's like magnets. How the heck do they work? But so far, the consistency has been that it affects vision, which is why it doesn't affect Daredevil. 
So Spider-Man being blinded by the Optiblast, okay. Probably gaining some vertigo? Probably. The spider sense? I don't buy it. And as mentioned, the Optiblast doesn't affect a blind man. What a payoff, we should have seen that coming. To be honest with you, I didn't. Not till I got to the end of this issue, and then I kicked myself because, well, it's telegraphed. Sometimes, kids, you just miss the forest for the trees. And you know, on that note of failure, I spoke last week about Daredevil having age and experience and training over Spider-Man, which is how he was able to barely edge out the wall crawler. Let's go ahead and just throw that right in the garbage can. Because Daredevil blows up a blimp. He blows up a blimp over a populated city area. When you blow up a blimp, what happens is fire, for one thing, lots of fire, but also fiery debris, glass, falling glass. All of this falling to the streets below, again, we're in a populated urban area. He blows up a damn blimp. Matt should know better, because this is a very big possibility of collateral damage. Now, I know we all do things in the heat of the moment. Please see the beginning of this episode. But Matt's smart enough to know that, well, if you blow that up, something's going to catch fire. And you know what the result was? All of this danger to the public, and granted the street seemed fairly empty, but there's property damage as well. But the irony is, he stops the henchman, but loses the masked marauder to do so. He loses the masked marauder. He had this villain in his sights. The henchmen could get away. Without their leader, what are they going to do? Who's going to pay their bills? But no, no, we're just going to let the villain actually just mosey on out of here. In fact, we're darn near going to open the door for him. But of course, we need the Marauder to come back again and be a long-term villain up until, well, next week when we see his final tale. And Daredevil, well, Daredevil vouches for Spider-Man. To kind of bring back the argument I had about J. Jonah Jameson, we have one masked man vouching for another. One masked vigilante saying another masked vigilante is not a villain. Well, I can take that guy's word. Now, you and I know Matt is trustworthy. We know Peter Parker's trustworthy. We're the readers. It wouldn't be an effective story or effective character if we didn't know they were heroes and on the up and up. But if you're a character in the Marvel Universe, especially a police officer, this is the equivalent of one drunk dude saying another guy is fine to drive. Shouldn't there be some skepticism in there somewhere? There is for me. And just to continue the failure train, the masked marauder stands only feet from Foggy and Karen overhearing this conversation. Only feet away. Why is this odd? Because, spoiler, if you don't remember episode 3, the marauder is in actuality somebody that they know. So, facial recognition, since these are two-sided characters in the book, could be a possibility, even though the Marauder's in this police uniform, his real face is exposed. And Foggy's still playing a dumb game. An extremely dumb game. I can't really go into it too far, because I think that would just be rehashing things. But this continues in issue 18, which I covered in episode 3, which is why it's not just a Mass Marauder trilogy. You can listen to episodes 3 and 4, and actually get the middle parts of this story, and flesh it out a bit. In fact... That's my homework assignment for you. Check out those episodes if you get time this week. So final verdict on Daredevil number 17. It felt less like an issue of Spider-Man than last week. I definitely felt like I was in at least a Marvel team-up, where both characters were on equal footing. But again, and to repeat myself, Ramita was being tried out for Spider-Man. If these issues hadn't happened, we never would have got Ramita on the web-slinger. And it's weird 
to hear Ramita talk about how, even though he made a very clear, definite mark on Spider-Man, he still wanted to draw more Daredevil. I knew I liked that Ramita boy for some reason. And again, we have this convoluted Looney Tunes, Wiley Coyote plan to try to catch the Marauder in a robbery. It works to some extent. Sure, the Marauder gets away, but it baits him in the right area. It brings him back to do the robbery. It shouldn't, but it does. Because you would think if you're going to invest the funds to do the initial robbery, you would have done the research. Or before staging a second robbery that involves a $5 million blimp, you would check the plans to make sure that this is legit. But that's what happens when you examine a story too closely. It starts to fall apart. What doesn't fall apart is the relationship between Daredevil and Spider-Man, especially in this early era. Because Daredevil's not sure where he stands on Spider-Man. Spider-Man very much could be an accomplice to the Marauder. But judging by their first interaction in Spider-Man number 16, Daredevil knows that there's some form of integrity in this masked man. So he levies his own doubt of Spider-Man to find out the truth. If Spider-Man shows up and he is the accomplice, well, well, Daredevil could be very well screwed. But Daredevil wants to know the truth. He is innocent until proven guilty. There's evidence that Spider-Man could be a menace or a hero. And Daredevil makes sure to set it up to find out the real true colors of the Web Slinger. Unlike the Fantastic Four issues, this one included Spider-Man's supporting cast. It was a very immersive crossover. In the first half in issue 16, sure, we felt more like we were in a Spider-Man book than a Daredevil book. Here, a lot of that gets drawn back to cameos. But I like the idea that these two very much inhabit the very same world. Of course, the very same city. And it's made very, very clear with J. Jonah Jameson making his cameo in Aunt May. But while I enjoyed the heroic aspect, the Marauder doesn't firmly establish himself as a real credible threat. He's very small time. He's very same old, same old. Normally you will find in these old Daredevil books, especially the Stan Lee and Roy Thomas eras, there was normally a schemer villain who would be behind the scenes for quite some time and then would be revealed to be somebody they know. See, the Executioner. But of course, the Marauder still has time and his story will evolve and we're going to see how that evolves next week. Of course, he's going to return again. This is ultimately a middle-of-the-road issue. With a, it's, it's an immersive crossover, but it's still a middle-of-the-road crossover. We don't necessarily get enough real interaction between our two heroes. It's far more fulfilling than the FF issues where Daredevil was in the background of the story and it was very much a Fantastic Four story. But I think that's also because Spider-Man and Daredevil fit together better. And those of us from the present day know that these two form a really solid relationship. It's an occasionally rocky relationship. These two come into conflict, but they form... I wouldn't go as far as to call it a brotherly relationship, but very close cousins and a very good friendship at its core. And to see this early evolution of that is quite a treat. It's far more entertaining and engaging than Spider-Man number 16, where it was a brisk fight side-by-side team-up. Here we got a little bit of conflict, and it really balances out the equations between these two. But of course, as I mentioned, the Masked Marauder is still on the loose. Again, if you would like to listen to episodes 3 and 4 to get the sequential story, that's great. I invite you to do so. But of course, I've never left you out in the cold before. I'm going to fill you in as we jump in next week with Daredevil number 27, which is the last stand of the Masked Marauder and the final installment in the Masked Marauder trilogy. Saga. Thing. Whatever. Whatever it is, we're going to be covering it next week. Until then, be
Be safe in the next seven days, and remember that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, they call a man without fear. Never far away, whenever danger's near. There's devil fight for what is right. There's devil fight for you tonight. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. He must hide his sadness and fight the human madness. Ghost Rider, when you hear his name.